Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. This is an audio-exclusive podcast edition of our program on PBS and streaming on podcasts across platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple. Adam Liptak is Supreme Court reporter for The New York Times. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Adam, do you see the impact of the pandemic on our electoral politics, specifically voting, being a Bush v. Gore ultimately, uh, or do you see it incrementally getting to the court as it did most recently in the Wisconsin case? Uh, it's very, very likely that the court will have a whole series of cases like the one coming out of Wisconsin, which, um, you know, on emergency applications, even as voting is going on, uh, calling on the court to decide how to conduct the election in light of the pandemic. And it's going to put the court to some very tough choices. It's quite possibly going to cast the court in a partisan light because the current composition of the court, which is a historical anomaly, uh, is that all of the Republican appointees are conservatives and all the Democratic appointees are liberals. Uh, and, you know, to, to cut to the chase and the, the, the initial question you asked, Yes, I think a, a post-election uh, recount-related Bush v. Gore-like decision is entirely possible. And based on what transpired in Wisconsin, do you see the court taking up cases as the primary and caucus results continue to come in, even though we do have a presumptive nominee in Vice President Biden and in President Trump? Um, well, many, many states uh, have postponed uh, their elections uh, into June. Um, the Wisconsin election sort of illuminated something. You're right that it was, on the one hand, a Democratic primary election. And now that we have a presumptive nominee, those, those, uh, those elections are entirely pro forma. But Wisconsin was also electing a state Supreme Court justice. Uh, very important in that case, in a quite uh, ideologically divided court, and lots of uh, local officials. So we focus on the presidential, we focus on the primaries, but of course we're electing countless people, uh, and some of those elections, even through the summer, will not be primary elections, but uh, elections for people who will hold those posts for years. Uh, and then even on the, in the presidential election, we're electing members of Congress and, and all sorts of other people. So the fact that we have a presumptive Democratic nominee uh, alters the equation to an extent, but it's not the whole story. There were two jurisprudential questions decided with respect to Wisconsin, right, Adam? There was the case specifically in the Wisconsin Supreme Court about postponement, and there was the case in the Supreme Court, the decision uh, about the reading and mailing of absentee ballots. Can you take our viewers through those two different decisions? Yeah, so people think one is an appeal from the other, but they're actually on completely separate tracks. And your summary of them was right. Uh, the bigger case was before the Wisconsin Supreme Court. It followed the governor's attempt to push the election off to June, both absentee ballot and in-person voting. And the question in that case, which the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, which is nominally nonpartisan, but closely affiliated with the parties by a four to two vote with the conservatives in the majority, and they 
justice up for re-election recused, said that under state law, the governor didn't have the power uh, to defer the election. And there were pretty good legal arguments supporting that uh, as a technical legal matter. But you also want to ask the question of what's the larger goal of the justice system in the midst of a crisis when democracy itself is at stake. So this illustrated a kind of two-track approach to these things. Your more conservative uh, justices might take the approach that we're going to apply the letter of the law, and your more liberal ones might try to find a solution to a you know, once-in-a-century crisis. So anyway, that was the bigger case. That was the Wisconsin Supreme Court case. The U.S. Supreme Court was called on to um, decide a quite narrow question. Uh, a federal district court judge uh, affirmed by a unanimous panel of the Federal Appeals Court in Chicago had said that he would extend the deadline for the submission of absentee ballots by six days and would not require them to be postmarked before the election. And the question for the Supreme Court was, uh, was a federal court allowed to do that? And there is uh, a presumption in federal election law that you shouldn't be changing the voting rules close to an election. But here again, you had the same kind of dynamic. You had the five Republican appointees taking a, a, a narrow uh, technical view of the law, and you had the four Democratic appointees in a powerful dissent written by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, let's let's take stock of reality here. Let's take stock of putting people's health at risk in order to exercise the franchise. Something's got to give. Um, an interesting point about the Supreme Court case is it's gotten a lot of attention uh, in many circles. It's quite unpopular. I was uh, contacted by a reporter in Wisconsin the other day who said, is it true that the justices voted remotely to say that other people can't vote remotely? And that's almost, it, they're not meeting in person anymore. So yes, that's, that's gotta be true. And that sort of gives you a layer of irony on, on, on top of all of this. It didn't affect many voters. Um, people have tried to do the math, uh, you know, that's not the, re the, the Wisconsin election was a complete shambles, but the U.S. Supreme Court's contribution to the shambles was fairly small. Right. And they have not figured out a way yet electronically or virtually uh, to convene and to hear cases. Yes. So they, um, they had been set to hear cases in March and April, a total of 20 cases, maybe 30 30% of the docket, I'm approaching 25%, 30% of the docket. All of those arguments have been postponed, and it's not clear what the court's going to do, whether they're going to decide the cases just on the written submissions, whether they're going to put the cases off until next term, which starts in October, whether they're going to try to convene by telephone or by Zoom or Google Hangout. Um, it remains to be seen. Uh, it would well, some of the cases could be easily deferred to the next term. They're not important, but at least a couple of the cases really would seem to warrant being decided by June, which is when the court ordinarily decides uh, its major cases, and that's a work in progress. 
So with respect to the opinion of the court and to the extent that any of the majority is persuadable, um, assuming you have states that implement remote balloting, absentee, uh, most likely mail-in vote where that has not been accessible to the public in the past, based on the determination and the ruling, if those decisions are made uh, according to the laws of various states in advance of November 3rd, um, there will not be a question as to the legitimacy of, of mail-in balloting. Of course, you have states already like Washington and Colorado that operate in that, in that form. That's right. And the court stressed uh, that it was not passing on the wisdom of mail-in balloting or how to conduct elections, that it was looking at a narrow legal question. <clears throat> and if states following their own laws uh, want to have uh, voting by mail, uh, the Supreme Court's not going to step in and stop them absent some uh, legitimate legal argument. The, the problem is going to be that this is such a partisan uh, divide that if you're not already there, and let's assume that even in November, we're still suffering from the pandemic or its after effects or resurgence, uh, if some state official wants to take an on-the-ground shortcut and, and tries to address an emergency situation, then you might get these similar kinds of cases coming to the court. And based on the opinion, and, and unlike the dissent, we, there's been some speculation about the authorship, but we don't know exactly how it came together um, with respect to concurrence or any nuanced thought among the five deciding justices, right? Well, so I'd, I'd say a couple things. One is that this came up as an emergency application. It was filed on a Saturday. Briefs were... Uh, submitted over the weekend. It was decided on Monday. So it was very, very fast work. Um, and that's not when the court does its best work. The majority opinion for five, the five conservative justices was unsigned. Um, that they issued an opinion at all on an emergency application was quite unusual. Uh, they typically just grant stays or deny them and don't give any reasons. The justice in, who supervises the Seventh Circuit is uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And so if you had to guess who was going to take the leading role in writing the unsigned decision, I would guess Kavanaugh. And a second reason to think it might be Kavanaugh is because he has unusually, um, in a couple of these uh, emergency applications, given reasons, whereas other justices are not likely to. So he's done that in abortion and death penalty cases. And there's a, the, 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 the tone and tenor of the writing also suggests Kavanaugh to me. Uh, but this is inference and speculation. How persuadable do you think in election emergency scenarios would any of those five be um, if, if you have a clear partisan outcome as the result of the decision? Uh, or do we just not know until the specifics of such a case arise? Again, if there's a very close election, this will be an issue, most likely. If there is a consensus and a large electoral victory by either candidate, it may not be an issue, right? 
Well, that's right. Uh, and, you know, there are reasons to hope that one way or the other, it's a landslide because uh, it's not good for the country, not good for the court for these issues about democracy and popular sovereignty to be decided by nine people in robes. Um, but to answer your question about who's persuadable, well, one way to think about it is just to look at the political science data on where the justices are ideologically. Uh, the, the four liberals are, you know, locked in. Uh, the three most conservative justices, Thomas Gorsuch and Alito, are, you know, in the great run of cases, uh, not particularly persuadable. So that leaves the soft middle of the court. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, who has occasionally, but only very occasionally, sided with the liberals in some cases, including the Affordable Care Act and uh, whether to add the citizenship question to the census and on a stay application in an abortion case. And then Brett Kavanaugh, where the data is quite limited, but he seems to be closer to the chief than to the more conservative justices, at least for now. Uh, but he's just gotten to the court, so we have a lot to learn about him. On the census case, um, there was, according to the chief, or based on the reading of the chief's decision or, or joining the liberals, uh, a corrupt intent on the part of um, the creators of the questions. Um, it, it could be correlated to partisanship or just corruption, but what made the difference in the census case that could potentially sway him in, in a future case? Well, what, what seemed to happen in the census case is that between the argument where it looked like it would be a routine 5-4 decision and the decision, uh, some information came to light from a Republican operative uh, who had died and his daughter released his uh, computer hard drive that the rationale given by Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, for adding the citizenship question to the census, um, he had said uh, that it was to help the Trump administration enforce the Voting Rights Act, which didn't strike most people as particularly plausible to begin with, uh, was really not the true rationale, and that, in fact, they wanted to help Republicans uh, win elections. Uh, and I think that evidence coming to light here again, this is inference and speculation, was enough to push the Chief Justice to the other side, uh, just as a matter of distaste for that level of, um, uh, you said corruption, that wasn't the word he used, uh, but just dishonesty, just a, a, a flagrant disregard for even doing a good job creating a paper trail for uh, the actions you wanted to take. I think it was just too much for Chief Justice Roberts. When it comes to the franchise, uh, whether in Shelby or in these recent emergency cases, um, the idea of you know, an expansive electorate that is unhindered um, is, is not one that Roberts is embracing. However, there is the argument from the minority in the Wisconsin case that the franchise is an originalist idea. Um, the, the franchise is, you know, from, from the beginning of the Republic, fundamental to our being. Um, when I asked how persuadable Roberts is, it doesn't seem very persuadable at all when it comes to 
um, expanding the franchise or upholding the integrity of the franchise from the perspective of, of uh, Justice Ginsburg or others in the minority. Um, is, is there um, anything that could change Robert's uh, calculus when it comes to voting rights? John Roberts's uh, record, both as a government lawyer and as a justice, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> uh, his record, both as a lawyer and, and justice, has suggested that he takes a narrow view of voting rights uh, and that he believes that restrictions on voting rights uh, can be appropriate. And that's consistent with um, a lot of Republican rhetoric. Um, some of it uh, framed around the idea that uh, this is necessary to prevent voter fraud. There's vanishingly little evidence that there's real voter fraud in the world. Uh, and some of it is just the, the, the realistic um, truth, as, as President Trump articulated the other day, that turnout helps Democrats. The more, if more people vote, more Democrats get elected. The larger the electorate, this is not true in every case, in every situation, but as a general proposition, um, the reason, the real world reason Republicans want to restrict voting is because when more people vote, more Democrats come out. How do the justices see the judicial reform movement as it is emerging and as the liberals themselves acknowledge that uh, if President Trump were to fill another seat this year with McConnell's uh, railroading it through the process, or even, you know, if he were to be reelected, th there would be not just a majority, but an insurmountable supermajority of justices. And in democratic politics, the idea of expanding the court or packing the court has gained a lot of new attention because of the um, lack of representation the population has, has felt in the 2000 election, Certainly in the 2016 election, the majority of the country votes for a president by popular vote who doesn't become president. And as a result, you have Samuel Leto, you have John Roberts, you have Brett Kavanaugh, you have Neil Gorsuch. How do the justices, especially the, the, the four liberal justices, see the, the possibility or necessity in some voters' minds of judicial reform on the Supreme Court? So only one justice has talked, so you use the term judicial reform, and there again, I'm not sure I want to adopt that, but expanding the size of the court in reaction to recent events, which as you say is popular in democratic politics, only one of the liberal justices has spoken out on that. Justice Ginsburg thinks it's a bad idea. She thinks nine is a good number. Uh, my sense is that making the court into a political football where you'd have tit-for-tat expansion, contraction, depending on who's in power in uh, the political branches, would be bad for the uh, court. Um, you know, the, if people are going to have some level of faith in the court, it uh, can't be subject to that kind of political manipulation. And I understand the argument that, yes, the Republicans have done terrible things. And uh, in the view of many, many Democrats, what happened to Merrick Garland was a travesty. I get that. Um, but it's not clear that the answer is uh, to, you know, go to nuclear war on both sides. Anyway, to answer your question, uh, the only 
justice who's spoken out about it publicly is Ginsburg, and she's uh, she would was against court packing. It brings to mind Jeffrey Rosen's idea of the most democratic or the most undemocratic branch from his book some years ago. Whether or not the court can have any legitimacy or credibility in the eyes of a public depends on representation. And just as a matter of population and the way that most democracies in a non-electoral college system adopt rights and protect rights, it is not in the strangest fashion of the electoral college or a, a, um, a vote that is not correlated with the will of the people. So I'm just wondering. Yeah, so that's, that's a problem. Uh, yeah. There's a terrific recent book uh, by Jesse Wegman, my colleague on the editorial page of the Times, called Let the People Pick the President, which really unpacks what a disaster the Electoral College is for democracy and proposes some types of reform which could well be achievable, uh, but they don't involve the Supreme Court. They involve either constitutional amendment or uh, states taking different ways of allocating their electoral college votes or states making agreements among each other about how to cast their electoral college votes. But it's in the constitution. You can't blame the Supreme Court for it. Uh, the constitution is a, is, is, is a fantastic document that has stood the test of time and was created by geniuses, but not every aspect of it is perfect. And the electoral college is really open to question. As Annette Gordon-Reed said recently on, on Twitter, you know, go big or go home with respect to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court says nay, then you're out of luck. Um, and of course, the reforms you're suggesting would, have to, would take time to um, have any impact in p politics, be it at the state or, or federal level. So it's a long haul. That's not going to happen for 2020, that's sure. That's yeah. Sure. Final question, Adam, and I really appreciate your time today and hope you're, you're staying well. Um, with respect to the decision that was most on people's minds or the, the argument and decision about Trump and his tax records, um, do you see the court postponing that until after the election, whether or not it's because of the pandemic or because it's convenient politics for the majority who would not like to see that case in the public's mind, especially if they are withholding their, the public's right to know? No, I think that will get decided by June. Uh, I, I don't have any inside information on this. The court has not made any announcements on uh, what it's going to do with the cases in which it has postponed arguments. But I don't see the court putting off that case or speaking of the Electoral College, a case on so-called faithless electors or on whether uh, members of the Electoral College have to vote as they had promised to do. So the cases that need deciding before the election, and I'd say those are the two of them, I feel pretty confident will get decided before the election, maybe without argument. I also will be a little surprised if um, there are three different cases uh, about Trump's financial records. I'd be a little surprised if the president wins all of them. Uh, I think that would not be good for the court's reputation. In earlier cases involving information sought uh, from Presidents Nixon and Clinton, the court unanimously ruled against the presidents, including appointees of Nixon and Clinton voting against the president. 
And I think that was good to show the independence of the court. And I think this court will keep those cases in mind. And I think you're suggesting that Roberts and maybe a couple of other justices, if not the entirety of the court, view this more like the census case than the Wisconsin or Bush v. Gore in that there is a clear violation of uh, Congress's rights here with respect to um, knowledge of, you know, from from lawfully obtained subpoenas uh, and the, perhaps the larger, broader public's right to know. But you're you seem to be contrasting it with with uh, cases where where Roberts might um, rule more narrowly, and this the, at least one of the three cases, if not all of them, may overcome the the partisan desire from the Republican Party to re- protect the president. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll broadly adopt what you say. I, I don't, I don't want to suggest that the justices think of themselves as partisan. I think they, and, and Justice Ginsburg said this in her Wisconsin dissent. She said, I believe my colleagues are acting in good faith, but they're just badly mistaken. So I do think the justices in all cases earnestly believe that they are applying the relevant legal principles. But none of us are really able to make decisions unmoored from our backgrounds and biases and priors. And that drives us in various directions. And I think, you know, with these justices, uh, the the ones on the left and the ones on the hard right uh, are completely persuaded that theirs is the right way to look at the world. And the soft middle of the court is uh, a little bit more in flux. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Really great to be here, Alexander.